You are listening to the Grow Law Firm Podcast, where each guest shares actionable, practical ideas with you on how to get more clients, expand your reach, and grow your law firm's revenue and profit. Here's your host, Sasha Burson. Welcome to Grow Law Firm Podcast. I'm your host, Sasha Burson, and here with me today, I have Mr. Paul Myers of Advocate Capital. Paul, welcome to the show. Thank you, Sasha. Appreciate you having me on. Paul, I've heard your interview on a couple of other podcasts, and I really wanted to get you on here so our listeners and viewers can also hear some of the nuggets of wisdom that you share with other attorneys. And I know you work with a lot of lawyers. So can you give us a little bit about your background before we deep dive into the things that you do and how lawyers can make more money or keep more of the money that they make? Sure. Again, I'm the CEO and chairman of Advocate Capital. I've been with Advocate for about 20 years, a little bit more than 20 years. Prior to that, my background was primarily in corporate investment banking. I was with Bank of America and its predecessors in Charlotte, North Carolina for many years. My last assignment with them was head of corporate investment banking for Tennessee, Kentucky, and that was up until the late 90s. I was the CFO for a telecom company at the absolute worst time to be in the telecom world, right when the tech bubble burst, and then hooked up with Advocate Capital in around 2000 and met the founder and drew up their credit policy manual. They had one client, and so I ended up joining with them in late 2000, early 2001, and been with them ever since. So all we have done since then is to try to fulfill our mission of helping ever-increasing number of plaintiff lawyers get even better results for their clients. How do you do that? Well, the way we help is we are advocates, no pun intended, for the plaintiff bar. We work solely with contingent fee plaintiff attorneys to try to provide them with the resources that they need, primarily to help them cover their case expenses. One of the biggest working capital needs that a plaintiff law firm has is to cover those case expenses. They, as you know, plaintiff attorneys almost always work on contingent fee basis, meaning that they don't get paid by their clients until the end of the case, whether it be a settlement or a verdict or whatever may result in a financial return for their clients, that's when they get paid. So all of the upfront expenses, the specialty witnesses, the depositions, the filing fees, everything for those cases are borne by these plaintiff law firms. And that's a huge drain on their working capital. Most of our clients have 500,000, a million, million five and up of their own money tied up in these cases. So what we help them do is unlock that a little bit, give them the working capital that they need to cover those case expenses and enable them to grow their firm, keep helping more and more of their clients, that kind of thing. That's super interesting. How do you securitize that capital if you do it all? Well, if you look at it from the standpoint of how we obtain our capital, we're a wholly owned subsidiary now of a large regional bank called Pinnacle Bank. It's headquartered here in Nashville, Tennessee. For many years, we had a consortium of senior debt lenders who provided us funds, of which one was Pinnacle. Pinnacle acquired us in mid-2019, so our access to capital, I don't want to say is unlimited, but it's pretty strong. Pinnacle is about a $40 billion in asset bank, really well regarded, very successful. So our ability to access the capital is not unlimited, but pretty close to it relative to the industry that we serve. And 
the way we structure our deals, we really underwrite a lot like a bank. We don't try to look at what cases our clients have, how much they might win, what their win-loss percentage has been in the past. We look at their historical ability to generate fee income, build net worth, and pay their bills. And we look at their historical ability to do those three things based on numbers and make the assumption that if they've been able to do that at that level in the past, they should be able to continue. So we use those kind of data points to help us establish, A, is this a law firm with which we should do business? And B, if so, what size line of credit makes sense for that law firm? When you turn down prospective borrowers, Mm -hmm. what are the main three reasons you do so? I would say the main three would be Sometimes they are extremely new. Maybe they just started their own shop. They hung out a shingle. They don't have much net worth, and they're just starting. Those law firms are harder to underwrite. But for an established law firm, the main reason that we have a difficult time proceeding is either A, their personal credit score, because most of these plaintiff law firms are not huge corporate law firms that have two, 300 attorneys. Most of them have one or two or three partners that own the law firm, and maybe five to 10 lawyers on staff. So a lot of times what you see there is is if they've grown too quickly, maybe they're over levered. Maybe they have too much debt from other lenders. There are a lot of lenders in the plaintiff bar space that will over leverage a potential firm. And so a lot of times they'll come to us and say, hey, we like your product. We'd like your value proposition. We like what you're trying to do. We want to do business with you. And maybe we look at them and we say, yeah, we could underwrite you for about a five or $600,000 line of credit, but they owe another lender a million or a million five. That makes it really challenging for us to step in and take over that relationship because one of the requirements that we have is that we obtain a first priority lien on the firm's accounts receivable. And if there's another lender with that lien, then of course you have to pay them out in order to get that first position. And so that could be challenging. So it's over leverage, it's lack of tenure, maybe credit score, maybe they don't have a really good credit score. Although our our credit score requirements are not astronomical, we usually look for a 620 credit score on the FICO scoring system. But those are probably the main three items that kind of block us from proceeding. And really, it's less usually of a credit function, Sasha, as to why we don't proceed. Usually, it is what I like to call inertia. Most of the firms who are now our clients and use our product and our capital are firms that, prior to working with us, self-funded their case expenses. Our average firm has about $500,000 in case expenses that they've invested into their cases. It's usually over about 100 to 200 cases, our average firm. And so what we like to tell them is, all right, that $500,000 is basically an interest-free loan that you've made to your law firm or to your clients, however you want to put it. So you've had to earn $750,000 to $800,000 in income, pay taxes on that, and then lend that money interest-free. Because That is what it is. It's a loan to your client until you recoup it. You get the money back at the end of the case, but you earn no interest on it. And so what our product allows them to do is to free up those funds that they have 
self-funded into those cases. And if you use our AdvaTrack case expense funding service, which from an ethical perspective enables you to recoup not only the money that you put out for those case expenses, but also the interest and fees that you pay us, then all of a sudden the cost of capital for the cases that you win is zero. Because you recoup it from your plaintiffs. Exactly. From the proceeds of the case. And from an ethical perspective, every state that has opined on this type of approach to case expense funding has said it is ethical and allowed. Interesting. And the plaintiffs okay that as well. So they should be Correct. And that's a very important point, Sasha, is that it is ethical, but most states, if not all of them, require some disclosure in the attorney-client agreement that say almost all of these plaintiff-attorney-client agreements will say, you're going to pay us X percent of the settlement value of the verdict as a fee, and you also agree to reimburse us for case expenses, including but not limited to specialty witnesses, depositions, accident reenactments, whatever it might be. And we encourage them to add something along the lines of, and if we choose to finance these case expenses with a finance company, you agree to reimburse us for the cost of that capital. Mm, very interesting. So serendipitous. I just finished talking to a new client, a lady who's been practicing on the defense side, employment oh. law for the last 23 years. Right. She's going on her own. And one of the questions that she's pondering upon, so she's going to start working on the plaintiff side and everything is going to be on contingency base now. Right. So she's like, yes, I do have decent assets. However, how do I not drain those assets while building up a brand new business? It's a great question. I mean, there are a couple of things she needs to be, she has good net worth and she has a good credit score. And she has some background in generating fee income in the practice of law. I mean, we may be a good fit for her. And I would say that the biggest challenge, if you're making that switch like she is from the defense to the plaintiff side, is the plaintiff side, of course, you're going to have to front all of that. I would say start slow to the extent you can. Focus on cash flow and not necessarily huge growth. Take on cases where you feel comfortable that the resolution may be reasonably quick, build some track record, get some money coming in. And also, if you can, obtain a capital source other than your own, because we always encourage our clients and our prospective clients to build net worth outside the law firm. All too often, firms, especially that get on huge growth curves, plow everything they have back into the firm it's very important for these folks to realize on occasion, you got to take something out, put it aside outside the law firm and build real net worth. And when we say real net worth, that doesn't mean necessarily art collections or jewelry or furniture. It means stocks, bonds, real estate equity, pay down personal debt, those kinds of things, because that kind of net worth will enable you to continue to lever because not just us, but most banks or other finance companies are going to look at net worth as a critical function. And most of them are going to discount, if not eliminate values associated with art collections or furniture or jewelry, not because they're not worth something, but because they're not leverageable in the event of a downturn. Yeah. They're just not as liquid Correct. as the owners want to think that they are. Right. Not to say they're not valuable and not to say they're not good ancillary investments, but don't 
you know, we, we've had a number of clients or prospective clients come to us and they've got millions of dollars associated with art collections. And we're like, that's great, but that's not what we're looking for. Now, if you have millions of dollars in art collection, but you have four or $5 million in stock and a few million dollars in real estate equity, you're probably pretty good. Done. So for someone who is just starting out and then going into a contingency fee type of arrangement, how would they go about obtaining capital? Because I assume there are quite a few lawyers who may be listening right now right? who may be in that position. Like, I am right. starting a PI law firm. I've been working for PI for the last 10 years. Now I want right. to go on my own. Yeah. I have some capital, but I do not have a capital to last for two years. Right. Or workers' law or employment law, rather. Right. Like, how would you go about operating capital for that? A lot of lenders, not necessarily banks, and this is where our niche kind of came about, is our niche of plaintiff lawyers is underserved by the traditional bank markets, primarily because most of them don't understand the value of a contingent fee account receipt. Most of them understand, all right, if you're a corporate firm and you're billing $5 million a month in billings, you're going to get paid the vast majority of that within 30 or 60 days. And that's an easier account receivable for a bank to understand, to get its head around and to value and to kind of figure out what that collateral is worth. Contingent fee accounts receivable are tougher because you have a right to receive payment for the work that you do, but you don't know how much it's going to be, nor do you know when it's going to happen. So what we've been able to do is figure out what that's worth. So I would say that taking your example, if you have an attorney who's been in this industry for five, 10 years, and they've worked for a firm, but they're ready to kind of go out on their own, hang their own shingle. To the extent that they can get from their existing firm the records of the fee income that they've generated, that's very important to be able to show some historical record of fee income generation. Now, I know it's not the financial statement or the tax return on their firm, but if they can get something certified, quote unquote, or even by an email from the firm that they're leaving that says, yes, this particular attorney was responsible for and generated X hundreds of thousands of dollars in fee income for our firm over the past years, that's something that at least we can hang our hat on a little bit. And if they have built up a reasonable amount of net worth and have paid their bills on time, and their credit score is halfway decent then that may be a relationship, even though it is, quote unquote, a startup that we could step into and assist. Very interesting. I want to go off a tangent and think about this sure. scenario. Let's imagine that you and I are partners. We're principals right. in a law firm. Mm -hmm. One of us, and we have a number of cases that are in various stages, mm -hmm. and all of them are continuously based. One of us kicks the bucket. The other one, and we do not have a buy-sell agreement in place, so there is no life insurance to buy out right. the other shares. Now, the family is coming in. Let's say I'm the one who's dead, and my family comes and says, Paul, we want to sell off the firm. How do we determine the value of the firm when we have 17 cases? The banker, yeah. how would you estimate the value of that pipeline of pending cases? That's a great question. We've actually had this situation, unfortunately, a number of times. Estimating the value of it is difficult. What I see more often happen there is not necessarily a, again, in your example, if there is no buy-sell, there is no life insurance to help pay out, that kind of thing. <laughs> it's just, hey, 
Sasha passed away. Sasha's family's looking to me as the remaining partner to take care of his portion. Usually what you see there is a fee sharing that pays out a certain percentage of the cases to the estate because it's really difficult. I mean, I guess you could come to some agreement as to what that amount might be. But for instance, in this example, again, your decedents would probably need to hire somebody to help try to figure out what that is, because otherwise they're relying on me, which is okay, I guess, if they trust me. But Mm -hmm. a lot of times, because contingent fee cases and their eventual value and the eventual timing of them are so difficult, even total experts, even attorneys who have been in the business for 20 years, if they're honest, are going to tell you the vast majority of cases you just don't know, Mm -hmm. unless they are way down the line as far as development. So a lot of times in those situations, you see the remaining attorney and decedents or the estate of the deceased attorney reach some kind of agreement that says, hey, on these cases that are in our house right now, that Sasha may have been partially responsible for, we agree to pay you some percentage of the fees that come out of that. And that will be the quote unquote buyout for the decedent's interest in the firm. That's usually what you see. And whether it's a death or just a split, we see that a lot where we've had folks who are partners for 30 years just say, you know what, we're going different directions. It's time for us to split this up and we're going to figure out how to do it. And usually that ends up being a fee split. Mm-hmm. Super interesting. I always think about exit strategy, regardless of what leads to that exit strategy, whether yeah. it's a divorce within the business or death or simply right. sometimes... Someone gets tired. Oh, yeah. Because I just don't want to do this anymore. It's been 23 years. I'm out. And that's one of the things that we highly, that's one of the reasons why we highly encourage all of our clients, even if they're on a high growth curve, to really think about that. Because what you don't want to do is end up 65 or 70 years old and say, you know what, I'm tired, but everything I've got is totally tied up against firm. I cannot walk away. And the beauty of the plaintiff attorneys, for the most part, is they are zealous in their pursuit of justice for their clients, and they feel like, I've always got to be doing this. But at some point, I think most of them do hit, as we all do, as I will, as you probably will at some point in your life, I'm going to hit a point where I'm like, you know what? This has been a lot of fun, and I've really enjoyed what I've done for a living, and I've helped a lot of people, and I've built things, but it's time for me to step back and not do this anymore. So Mm -hmm. I really encourage all of our clients, both from a business and more importantly, from a personal perspective, to be very cognizant of building net worth outside of that law firm, retirement plans and investments that are going to be long-term and will take care of you when you're ready to step aside. Because even if you're 35 or 40 and you're blowing and going, at some point, you're going to want to be there. You're going to want to step out. And I also encourage them, get life insurance. Because some of the most challenging situations that we have been in is when one or more of our attorneys pass away and that debt is still there. That debt does not go away. And we are left working with a widow or a widower trying to figure out how best to liquidate that debt. Nobody wants to be in that situation. That's a big problem. It is. It is a huge problem and it's a personal problem and it's a real challenge. I have not interviewed anyone else in this line of work, and I learned a ton of new things from you. <laughs> really appreciate it. 
And I'm always like curious about like, how do you value that? Not that, pardon me. How do you value, value of outstanding cases, the pending cases, like right. what's the worth of that pipeline? Because to me, it's just such a mystery. Even if you have your like win-loss ratio, right. right from the past, the past is not a perfect predictor of the future. So how do you know that 70% of that pipeline is going to turn out to be winning cases? You don't know. Now, we don't look, again, from an underwriting perspective, when we have a firm apply with us, we don't ask them to send us, show me all your cases. Give us all that. We ask for historical financial information, tax returns, personal financial statements, and we look at their historical ability to generate fee income. And if they've been relatively steady and can show us that they generate fee income, we make the assumption, of course, that they'll be able to continue to do it. Now, we don't ask them about what their one-loss records have been. We don't ask them how many cases they have. We don't ask them what they think these other cases are going to do in the future, nor do we ascribe any, quote-unquote, net worth value to that future value because it's speculative. Mm -hmm. But we do make some assumption that they'll be able to continue to do that because they've done it in the past. So if they've been able to do this successfully for three, four, five, 10 years, 20 years in some cases, we make the assumption that all things considered, they'll be able to continue to do it. Now, there are lenders out there in our niche of an industry that will look at existing case mm-hmm. portfolios and try to make some assumptions based on the potential value of the case and the merits of the case as to what it might be worth. And they may lend a percentage of that. To us, that money tends to be a lot more expensive than mm-hmm. ours because it's a little more speculative. It's a little more risky. And for instance, we don't have a single attorney on staff. We have no lawyers on staff. All of our people are finance and service and accounting and operations and marketing. We're a pretty traditional finance company operation. We don't try to get into the weeds on the potential value of a case or a portfolio of cases. It's really tough to do with any degree of accuracy. And what we found after doing this 20 years, if we kind of stick to our knitting, we tend to find law firms that are successful. We tend to find law firms that appreciate our value proposition. And based on our underwriting criteria, we tend to not only arrive at a line of credit that is serviceable for our law firm. In other words, they can generate the amount of cash it takes to service the debt and it be a benefit to them without overburdening them or over leveraging them. But also it gives us comfort that, hey, we're going to have good credit quality and we're going to give them the amount of capital they need to go prosecute the cases. Very interesting. Last question again, off the tangent. I assume that you've looked at hundreds, possibly thousands of financial statements from various law firms. Oh, yeah. What would you consider a properly financed law firm in terms of like, what does their balance sheet look like in terms of assets versus liabilities? Right. Long-term liabilities I'm talking about. I would say law firms, especially plaintiff law firms, are a typical service-oriented business. In other words, they're not going to have a lot of fixed assets. I mean, they're not a manufacturing operation. They're not going to have a ton of equipment and facilities. They're going to have desks and chairs and computers. And so the fixed assets are going to be negligible. They're going to have probably a very large, what's called an IOLTA or escrow account where the proceeds of their cases sit and they rotate through, but they're going to have an offsetting IELTA liability for that. So 
that's almost a wash. They're going to have some operating cash. And then if they're doing their accounting correctly, one of the major assets they're going to have on their balance sheet on the asset side of the ledger is going to be case expenses. Basically, monies that they have invested in active cases for which they are due to be reimbursed at the conclusion of the case. Not the potential fee income they get, but the actual dollars that they've invested. So that's going to be one of their primary assets that's not automatically offset on the liability side. Mm. So on the liability side, you may have some credit card debt, things along payables for, you know, kind of routine payables, and maybe some debt on the fixed assets. So if you, you know, go buy a computer system or a software system and you finance it through the provider, you may see some minor debt there. But for the most part, most of our law firms, as far as equity value of the law firm on a balance sheet should show about zero Mm. or maybe a little bit more if they have not levered the case expense, if they've not borrowed money, like for instance, on our product against the case expenses. Most of the net worth in an entity, and I include the, the partners in that entity, reside with the partners because just like most service oriented businesses, they don't really have a need to accumulate capital in that law firm entity. So what they do is they earn profits and they distribute them out at the end of the year to the partners, which is perfectly fine. I mean, most major corporate law firms are like that. Mm. They don't keep a ton of equity on the balance sheet of the law firm. They tend to distribute it out to the individual owners of the law firm. And that's why, again, we look at not just the net worth of the law firm. When I talk about net worth, I'm talking about the net worth of the law firm and the net worth of the partners who provide a guarantee to our debt. Got it. That all makes sense. Thanks so much for all the insights. If folks wanted to reach out to you and ask you about the type of financing that you offer, how do they get a hold of you? Best place to learn more. We've got a ton of information at www.advocatecapital.com. They can reach out to me personally, P. Myers. It's M-Y-E-R-S at advocatecapital.com. Or they can call me directly at 615-577-5445. That's my direct line. We've got 60 to 70 associates ready to help. And I'd be happy to get them in touch with anybody they need to talk to. Awesome. And by the way, to those who are listening, watching and listening, I highly recommend, as the case with most other things finance-related, it's best to have a conversation before you have the acute need. Once you have the acute need, it may be a little bit too late. So have the conversation so that you're ready when you have the need or even before you have the need. That's a great point. I don't want to get it too far off on a tangent, but our sales cycle is extremely long. And there's a reason because it takes a while for law firms, number one, to dedicate the time in the the hearing to understand what we're trying to do. Mm -hmm. But what we want to do is make sure that we talk to them over time and help them realize the importance of these things. And a lot of times, if it's just, oh my gosh, I'm short on cash and I got to get some money, that's not the best time to do it. The best time to do it is when, hey, I like the system. I like the value proposition. Let's go ahead and get this in place. That's the important time to do it. And as with any financial decision, make sure you get competent advice and professionals, not just ours. You know, we're, we're more than happy to speak to CPAs 
or tax advisors or anybody, financial planners. We really highly, our, our most successful firms are ones that are number one, great attorneys, but also realize that, hey, we're also a small business and we need to run ourselves like one. And so we hire or get advice from people who really know what they're talking about. And so we really like to talk to those people. So get good advisors, plan ahead, and we'd be happy to help. Great advice. Thanks so much, Paul. Appreciate it. All right. Sasha, have a great day. Thanks for listening to the Grow Law Firm podcast. If you liked the ideas shared in this episode, help a fellow lawyer out by sharing a link to the episode. This episode is powered by the team of experts in client attraction, growlawfirm.com. Do you want a complimentary growth plan for your law firm? Request it at growlawfirm.com slash blueprint.